Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I am the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. During episode nine, Technology and Compassion, I talk with Blake Sollenberger. Blake shared his interesting experiences with the artificial intelligence to address day-to-day revenue cycle challenges for healthcare systems. We talked about how machine learning and analytics can improve payment outcomes for healthcare providers, ferret out inefficiencies, and improve the patient experience. We talked about the innovative work that SIFT Healthcare is doing to change patient payments and what the future holds for AI and healthcare IT. Some information about Blake. He has deep experience in leading healthcare revenue cycle and driving digital transformation within healthcare organizations. Blake's roles have included AVP of Revenue Cycle at UTMB, Director of Performance Improvement and Revenue Cycle Transformation at Nordic Consulting, and a Product Manager at Epic. Hope you enjoy listening to the Technology and Compassion episode of House Call. Hi, Blake. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Claire. How are you doing? I am well. And how about you? I'm good. It's a it's a good day to help our healthcare partners get paid. So that's what oh. I'm here to do. And I'm excited to talk to you about it. Oh, it sure is. And we are so excited to have you today. And as we always do on our episodes, we've got a lot to get to today. So if you don't mind, uh, we're going to go ahead and dive right in with our first question for you. Sure. Awesome. All right, Blake. Well, could you tell us a little bit about SIFT Healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So SIFT Healthcare develops AI and machine learning products focusing on demystifying healthcare payments by integrating actionable intelligence into revenue cycle workflows to help our healthcare organization partners work smarter, protect margins, and accelerate cash. And we do that by focusing on a couple of different key areas. We work with one of the largest early out self-pay vendors, servicing 40 of the largest and most prestigious healthcare systems, providing micro-segmentation of their self-pay balances, call cadence, outreach prioritization, and payment plan recommendations to help increase that self-pay liquidation. We also work with hospitals and health systems to provide analytics and machine learning that address their day-to-day revenue cycle complexities, focused on improving their payment outcomes by optimizing how to prioritize their denial appeal efforts, preventing denials upstream during those mid-cycle workflows like coding, CDI, UM, and leveraging that data to address those root causes of upstream workflow inefficiencies. Longer term, SIFT is focused on uh, working towards AI-based technologies to shape the future of healthcare reimbursement by aligning insurance payers and healthcare providers to reduce costs and drive a better patient experience. Wow. I, that's, uh, it sounds very, very complicated um, and uh, actually quite intense given the, I think, connection between the, the use of technology and I think the complicated just healthcare system in general we we have in our country. Yeah. Well, you said you said complicated a couple of times, and it's really funny when I talk to friends or families or colleagues who aren't in healthcare, they're always really surprised at how complicated getting paid is. You know, it's it's one of those things where a lot of other uh, industries, if they walked into their building, a new CEO walked into their building, even better if a new CFO walked into the building. And everybody was telling them there's about four to five percent of their net patient revenue that they can't figure out where it is. Any other mm-hmm. industries, those those people would be fired. But in healthcare, it's actually pretty common. I, I joke whenever I drive by a hospital, I go, "There's four percent missing in that building." And so the reality is, it, you know, healthcare institutions have become lending in- institutions. They're they're extending services on credit, basically 
hoping they're going to get paid in the next 14 days, but sometimes it's over 90 days and they're starting to figure out where that money has actually gone to and how to get it in the door. Hmm. And so in your experience, where, where is the money and, and is it the technology that SIFT provides helps healthcare providers find it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the biggest thing when we think about AI and machine learning versus legacy rules-based systems is that when you have very structured rules, like say payer contracts or CMS regulations, it's easy to build a rule system that says, if this, then this. The contract says, when we do this, they're going to pay us this. But what is challenging is the ambiguity of the statement of the contracts. The payers don't play by the own rules that they've set and bound you to. And then they hide behind the opaqueness, the, the ambiguity of the contract language. Or if you have certain level of care guidelines, let's just say, for example, that you're holding yourself to, they're going to interpret those level of care guidelines differently and then deny you payment. And so it kind of becomes this hide the cheese game where you're constantly trying to find those pockets of uh, revenue opportunities, payment opportunities in your open age trial balance that the payers are doing a lot of payer gamesmanship on. Or in the cases that the payer is actually right, you've maybe misinterpreted differently. It's the variability of the, the workflow now. Now it's, let's say I'm uh, making level of care determinations as one UR nurse versus another UR nurse who's interpreting it slightly differently. Mm -hmm. The variability inside your own walls rather than outside your walls at the payer. And now it's about figuring out where does the problem really lay and what is the most optimal accounts to be going after to get that money overturned if it's a denial, to get that payment in the door if it's a self-pay patient who has trouble paying and maybe just needs to get on the right financing or payment plan terms. So those are all these different complications that go throughout extending uh, accounts receivable and actually turning it into revenue. Wow, that is really, really fascinating. I am wondering if you might be able to tell us about your own desire and where it started to get into the healthcare system. Yeah, you know, um, I, I'll say it, it started probably even before I realized it um, because of my mother's career. So I've always observed healthcare growing up as a child, uh, walking in and out of hospitals to my mother's office. Um, so I've, I've been around it the whole time. My mother, she's been in all sorts of administrative roles as a surgery department administrator, a VP of hospital operations. And then um, towards the back half of her career, she's been chief operating officer at a couple of places, uh, chief executive officer at a few other places, and uh, even chaired America's Essential, America's Essential Hospital. So mm. she's uh, certainly made a name for herself in the industry. She's been very successful of it and just a tremendous leader. Um, so even though I got to observe healthcare, I also got to observe Donna's leadership. I, I got to observe, uh, you know, the way she interacted with people, the way she led 10,000 plus organizations uh, as a slow moving ship and moving it quickly uh, into all these advancements and innovations that were helping further uh, patient care. So, you know, I've always kind of had uh, an admiration for healthcare because of the work that uh, Donna did throughout her career that I got to observe up close and personal. But, you know, as a young 20-something out of college with the last name Sollenberger in healthcare, you know, it wasn't, it was my name wasn't John Smith, it was Blake Sollenberger. So certainly <laughs> people knew uh, who were in healthcare if that was related to Donna Sollenberger. 
So, I, you know, I guess part of me being a young 20-something, I, I didn't want to necessarily live under that shadow. Um, and so I, I went and got my degree in accounting. I went to go work for a global accounting firm called Grant Thornton. I was mm-hmm. a young tax uh, associate. And I, boy, was I bad at that job. Um, I, I really struggled to find my groove. My, my potential wasn't getting realized. I, I knew uh, I, I was meant to do something more, but... Uh, I was just having a failure to launch. And when you're really feeling inadequate in a job, uh, you can start to sense and know when other people are noticing as well. You start to feel a drain on some of the more competent folks. And Mm -hmm. I had a manager who was, uh, I guess, putting it politely, less than nurturing. I remember one day I was probably having a particularly bad day. She was reviewing my tax returns that I put on her desks as part of the review process. And out of frustration, walked by my cubicle, slammed down a stack of returns with big yellow highlighter written on it in all capital letters, the word fail. And that's when I realized I'm not doing well and this is not a nurturing environment. And, um, you know, so I started looking around. I was still looking at, you know, accounting, finance. I I still enjoyed the administrative side of businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was kind of looking in that realm. And then the 2008 financial collapse was reverberating throughout the nation. And about 2009, 2010, the Madison office I was working out of uh, consolidated into the Milwaukee branch. And uh, as you can imagine, somebody who's getting the words fail written on top of his work product, he wa- I wasn't asked to be a part of those plans. And so I did what anybody in Madison, Wisconsin, who finds themselves unexpectedly unemployed would do. I, I applied to this big medical records company in Madison, Wisconsin called Epic. And Epic mm-hmm. uh, supplies uh, uh, electronic medical records for over half of the American population. I mean, they're in the largest healthcare organization. So I, I found my way back to healthcare. I did it through Epic Medical Records. Um, by and large, because these were also young tech people, they were doing these really exciting things, but they weren't born in healthcare. So you know, nobody necessarily noticed my last name, which was also kind of refreshing. It was something I got to do on my own. I didn't necessarily feel like I was riding coattails, but all these people were doing these really incredible things. It was this environment that was so fast. Everybody had such a low tolerance for questions without answers. And I, I just fell in love with the, the pace and the variety of work and some of the problems we were solving for those providers and the challenges they were facing. It just, it just clicked. So I had, you know, I had good leaders who weren't writing mean words on my work product. I was good at my job finally. <laughs> and I guess all the other jobs after that, they, they, they're going well. And, and while I may not be doing epic work anymore, at this point, I'll, I'll never leave healthcare. It's truly rewarding being here. Oh, that is such a great story. And gosh, I can't imagine what kind of pressure you must have felt um, back then when you were trying to find your groove. Um, not only, you know, working at a firm that just wasn't treating you very well, but you also sort of yearning for something more and, um, you know, just trying to find your own place in the world, maybe uh, separate and apart from the great work that your mom was doing. So that is a really, really awesome story. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of full circle, I think, you know, when, boy, when you're in your 20s, you don't know who you are, you don't know what you want to be. But as I look back on that time, I don't know really what I was avoiding because, yes, she, she casts a big shadow, but it's been so rewarding now that I'm more established in my own career. Perhaps I don't have my own insecurities about it, but 
Um, it was, it's been amazing as I've been in healthcare consulting. I've worked with so many different organizations in many different states. And every so often, people will come up to me after a meeting. They go, Sollenberger, are you related to Donna Sollenberger? I say, yes, yeah, she's my mother. And, and suddenly, these people are just opening up to me and sharing how much of an impact she had on their careers, the guidance they gave, the it, maybe they worked six degrees separated from her, and yet they still felt like she knew them. Um, and so, you know, it's it's really incredible kind of hearing these stories from people's careers and, and how she helped them along the way. And no matter what state I'm in or, or what hospital I'm walking through the halls of, if, if somebody encounters me and asks about my last name, it, it's amazing how many people connected with Donna and the impact she had in her career. So it's, you know, it, I don't know what I was avoiding. It was it was yeah. uh, it's, it's been great to hear it. Well, and you are also, you know, staking out your own uh, place in in the industry, slightly different, right, than what your what your yeah. mom had been doing. But what a great, great way just to be able to listen to all of those stories that folks are telling you about her, and you get to share that information back with her. That is just such a great, great story. Thank you for that. Blake, I recently read an article that you had published on LinkedIn called Learning Disruptive Behavior from a few years back. And while I know that the, you know, the substance of that article was focusing on the dichotomy between rewarding disruptive behavior in the business world versus, you know, the pejorative context that it seems to have in education, as an IT pro in healthcare, I'm curious about your perspectives about the gap between healthcare's lack of tolerance for risk and how leading edge technology could and perhaps does disrupt the healthcare industry. Yeah, yeah. You know, disrupt, uh, boy, that's an interesting word. And, and really, you know, for some background on, on that article, uh, let me just kind of give, give a brief background. That, that was a really personal article I, I wanted to share on my professional network. Um, and I was happy I did, you know, because basically the premise was kind of about my, my oldest son. He has ADHD, he's on the spectrum, and he really requires um, the right touch um, to unlock his potential and, and to learn. He has so much potential, much of it's very realized because we've been fortunate enough to find those gems uh, in his educational pathways that have really helped him along the way. But, you know, it got me thinking about his disruptive behavior. And yeah. I, I remember thinking about that word in a negative context. I was feeling like he's disrupting others from learning. He's disrupting the teacher to teach effectively to the other children in his class. And and then meanwhile, I'm doing these things, whether it was working in Epic Consulting, whether it was doing AI and machine learning or consultative services uh, in, in, in my uh, professional services background, you know, people use the word disrupt or disruptive a lot in press releases, right? But mm -hmm. in, 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 in the business world, that word's really celebrated. But in uh, my son's learning environment, probably in a lot of other kids like him, the word disruptive was this pejorative. And so um, it was a really interesting incongruence between the word. And I'm thinking, why are we trying to stamp this out? Children, by their very nature, when they act out, they're demonstrating their exceptionalness. And so here we are trying to dampen that when really, when they get to the business world, if they're disruptive, that, that's a good thing. So shouldn't mm -hmm. we be rewarding that? Shouldn't we be rearing that and channeling that? So, you know, to your point, his, 
you know, healthcare has historically been risk adverse. And I think with its connection to academia, it is medicine. It is uh, research. It is mm-hmm. applied research in a clinical care setting. So I think probably because healthcare is so closely connected with academia, perhaps the idea of disruption is somewhat extended to that. I think if we think about uh, also, too, the stakes at play, we're talking about the quality and the safety of patient care that uh, should always be uh, put at a premium and always should be the key focus that I think kind of naturally the equation favors consensus, it favors standard of care, and all of those things are important if your pursuit of quality and safety is paramount, which it should be, but yeah. that comes at a cost. That comes at um, just, you know, not taking advantage of disruptive or leading edge pursuits. Um, and so not that it's all or nothing, but how much risk to avert? How does it impede cure advancements of care? You know, these things always need to be assessed in balance with safety and quality. But, um, you know, one of those externalities is the lack of technology adoption. I mean, things like cloud computing, AI, mm-hmm. automation, these are all concepts with plenty of tread in other industries, but it's just now reaching healthcare. So there's still a lot to unlock there. And just from a product perspective, given that I'm at a healthcare product company, you know, the best product market fit for AI technology products is large data sets. It's imperfect data sets. And I can't think of a better sector to be exploring AI technologies than in healthcare because of that large imperfect data. Mm, Interesting. So what do you think, I mean, what could be some basic things that could be done to move the needle on finding a better balance between, you know, like you said, the, 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 the quality of care that that is expected to be delivered to patients, which just has inherent um, risk adversity to it, in comparison to being able to take advantage of leading technology. Yeah, I think it's applying it in the places where you don't have to factor quality and safety into the equation. So a lot of what we're doing at SIFT is focused on operating margin improvement. We're focused on the receivables. We're focused on the post-care receivables. So, you know, I think when folks are trying to really understand and get their arms around all that AI can offer, I think starting in places where you don't have to have that perceived or maybe real risk of safety equality is to focus on some of the more administrative functions because too many healthcare organizations aren't uh, putting their uh, credentialed staff at the top of their licensure. We have all these RNs who are doing UR functions, who are doing CDI functions, these are very, in many ways, um, administrative functions that are put into place because of the payer landscape, because you need to have documentation initiatives to maximize reimbursement with your MCC mm-hmm. and CC capture. You have outpatient CDI for your HCC code capture. You have UR nurses who are interpreting interqual or Milliman guidelines because a payer contract dictates that that's what's necessary and it needs to be done daily. Uh, concurrent review needs to be done daily. All of these things that aren't necessarily patient care, and yet these are RNs who have to facilitate it. Gosh, wouldn't it be great if an organization could help um, you know, improve some of that waste, improve some of that administrative burden so that these people can be operating at the top of their licenses directly with their patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's it's and that answer, by the way, Blake, is a great segue to my next question, which is how does artificial intelligence create a better patient experience? Oh boy, that's a really great question, and you know the amazing work we're doing at SIF to address 
patient financial experience. It, it's so important. It's so personal to me because in some ways it's, it's easy to be a product lead at SIFT uh, when we're dealing with patient financial experience, because I'm a patient too. I'm married to a patient. I'm the parent of three little patients. And mm-hmm. um, I've had high deductible health plans. I've been a self-employed consultant. And whether you're fully insured, but maybe you're out of network, whether you're underinsured, or uh, if you're ever uninsured, uh, you know, patient financial responsibility, it's such a burden. You know, we all know that anxiety, that state of confusion we've all been through on the many occasions because we're all patients we've all received those unexpected medical bills or even if they're expected it's it's how do you still plan for it because it it wasn't something you were necessarily saving for when it occurred Mm -hmm. so the problem space here is really how can we provide compassionate collections using data credit scores have major blind spots rule systems those are top-down approaches when every patient is a unique snowflake so let's Let's say a patient may owe $5,000, but but what is their financial situation? What's their expected liquidation? Could data predict and tell us that, hey, even if they owe $5,000, can this patient, because of their situation, only pay 500 of that? So if, they're, if you're on the phone with them and they offer that, take it. Don't keep trying to squeeze water out of a rock. Don't jeopardize mm-hmm. that patient's experience and, and that perception of your organization because you keep hassling them for an amount you'll never collect. So it's, it's both a cost-saving measure and it's a patient experience winner to know when enough's enough. And it's important to know that that's, that's not to say that the organization doesn't deserve that money. If, if it's $5,000 because that was care rendered, but if you can't actually get all of that out of it, you, but you don't know where to stop, that's where data and predictive technologies can help to say, what can you truly liquidate out of this? And then when do you stop? Because there's important research done, anybody, who's familiar uh, with the book, and I'm escaping the, the names uh, of the authors are escaping me, but it's, it's peak moments is, is the concept. And so they did plenty of research on this that show consumers remember their best, their worst, and their last interactions with a brand, which will shape their overall perception of the brand. And when we think about the patient journey from walking through your door, from scheduling services to paying their final bill, Patient collections is typically both the worst and the last interaction a patient is going to have with your brand. So let's say you've got that patient scheduled at their preferred time. You hounded the insurance company on their behalf to get those services authorized. You provided this incredible care. The procedure was a success. The hospital food was tasty. The bedside nurse was kind. The parking attendant let you out of the garage even though you forgot your parking validation. All of those things were these great peak moments, but then three months later, you got the dreaded collections call. You paid what you can, but it wasn't enough. They called Mm -hmm. you four months later, five months later, every week. They're texting you every day. They're calling you, trying to collect everything they can. And again, I'm not saying the provider hasn't earned that revenue, but patient collections is hard. It's personal. And the fact of life is if you're simply not able to collect every dollar you deserve from every patient, you know, you still can collect where you can be compassionate where you can, and data unlocks both of those so you can flip those negative patient experiences into peak moments. Wow, that's incredible. And I love the language that you use about showing compassion to a patient that is, you know, upfront and tells you that they, you know, they can only afford to pay X percent of, of the bill and what that can do in terms of the long-term relationship that that person has with that um, healthcare facility. Yeah. That's really awesome. 
And here's what's amazing, too, is um, just just like you reiterated there, you know, sometimes patients are very upfront about what they can actually afford to pay uh, when you are collecting on them. And and we have data that backs this up. What we have shown is that if, if you can engage the patient where they financially are and you can offer them a payment plan on terms that they can handle, what we have learned is that 80% of those are, you will end up liquidating 80% of the patients you put on a payment plan versus 20% of the patients you are unable to get on a payment plan. The Mm. key is unlocking the data to know what are the terms of that payment plan I should offer? What's the monthly amount? What's the length of that I should, I should um, uh, give them and offer them. But the problem is without data, without predictive intelligence, these collectors, they rely on the policies and procedures, which are top-down, one-size-fits-alls. We don't allow yeah. any payment plans more than 24 months. We don't allow monthly payments any less than $25 a month, et cetera, et cetera. And really what you need is a bottom-up approach. You need to understand that every patient is different and their needs are going to be different. So if you can offer the payment plan that's going to resonate with them, that's going to be less likely that they break their payment plan uh, a few months down the line, a year down mm-hmm. the line that you're going to liquidate them 80% of the time. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. It uses digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategy Services, the team and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity-strategies.com. It is an interesting prospect of moving away from that one-size-fits-all because I would imagine, at least on its face, um, you know, collections probably think, or, or maybe even the healthcare uh, facility itself thinks that, oh, well, it's going to be a huge administrative burden to manage all these sort of individualized payment plans. Is is that sort of reason why people, you know, continue with these sort of standardized approaches? It, you know, it, it could be that. Um, I think sometimes it's just simpler to write the policy and then it's the collectors who didn't write the policy who are feeling these really personal phone calls. It's why it's a high turnover area. I, I um, used to work at University of Texas Medical Branch and in our revenue cycle office leading that department. And our customer service reps turned over all the time because it, it's, yeah. it's a very high empathy, uh, very, uh, emo- a lot of emotional intelligence is required because you are really dealing with patients who maybe haven't even fully recovered from the care they received. And uh, mm. both both physically as well as financially. And, and here you are continuing to extract from them. And so it can be a very burdensome job. And then these people are handcuffed by the policies and procedures that they didn't write. But maybe the people who wrote those policies are too far removed. And I always say that a good process is self-managing. And so if you can simply have a technology that tells your staff member, the next outbound call I make, here's the payment plan terms, here's what it is policy procedure be damned. This is just what you need to offer this patient because this is a lookalike model. Even if we've never seen this patient before, we've seen a patient that looks like them and this is what they're going to be able to pay. And -hmm. if you can do that, then you sort of let and empower your staff, your collection staff to be the CFO of their account. 
they get to be responsible for liquidating that. They're empowered to offer the terms that are being suggested to them by an AI rather than the same payment plan terms to every patient. Um, and so it really can empower your staff with data that you don't have to manage at a, at a macro level. It can be managed individually at a micro level for each patient. And like I said, they get to be the CFO of that account. Yeah. And we all know that um, when individuals have autonomy on the job, that certainly increases their own satisfaction, which um, is just another win, right? Right. Oh, that's great. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit specifically about what SIFT is currently working on with respect to AI and patient payments. Yeah. Um, so we're working on something very exciting right now. You know, we've we've partnered with the uh, largest, um, uh, one of the largest outsource vendors, servicing 40 of the largest, most prestigious healthcare systems. And a lot of what we've talked about up to this point has really been focused on post-care uh, collections. But this one I'm really excited about. We're also currently piloting the ability to bring our patient payments intelligence further upstream at the time of scheduling for more proactive and precise patient financial engage engagement. And we're dubbing this the financial front door. Mm -hmm. And if we think about all these uh, you know, regulatory and market pressures, things like No Surprise Billing Act, Price Transparency Act, the rise of patient consumerism, and more and more of the receivables being bared by the patient because of high deductible health plans, the need for this is clear. And you know the academic medical center that we're partnering with, only 37% of their patients will pay their bills. But of those of those 37%, 60% of those patients will pay with little to no effort. They'll just get the statement and then they'll pay the bill. So how can we help a patient understand their financial options at the same time that they're presented with their clinical care options, at the same time that they're presented with their scheduling options? How can we ease that financial burden by getting them the most accurate estimate for services at the time of scheduling, how can we proactively offer those tailored payment plans to them proactively that they can already start paying for, putting money down and anticipating and predicting what insurance will fully pay versus what they're going to pass on to the insurance and bake that in at the time of ordering, at the time of scheduling, before we even fully know what that adjudicated allowed amount is going to be from the payer. Because it's, it's not just as easy as reading the copay off the back of the card, right? It's, yeah. it's the patient may have a $2,000 deductible, uh, $2, deductible, but uh, maybe they've paid 800 towards of it. So they've got $1,200 left on their deductible. Well, how much is this service going to be? Is it going to be 50? Is it going to be 100? Is it going to be 150? Is it a procedure and it's going to be all of it? We don't really know um, always at the time of scheduling how much the care is going to eat into that remaining deductible. Or if they have a co-insurance, like 20% co-insurance for Medicare. Okay, well, well, 20% of what? Healthcare, mm. it's notoriously bad at guessing what the final bill will be earlier upstream in the cycle. So the sooner we can predict what insurance is going to allow, what portions of the, uh, of the care that the patient will owe, and what the patient can reasonably afford and how to pay it, whether it's financing or payment plans, the greater the collections this organization is going to receive and sooner and the happier that patient's going to be and engaged earlier uh, financially in the process. Mm, that is so interesting. How long have you had the pilot running at this point? 
Yes. So we're actually still very early in it. We, we've gotten the data in the sense that we understand the patient populations we're talking about. So that statistic I gave you about 60% of the 30%, mm -hmm. 7% that pay uh, will pay reliably. Well, now it's just a matter of how do we, now it's a matter of figuring out how to put this intelligence back into their EMR so that they know when that patient walks up, hey, are they part of this are they part of this 37%? If so, are they part of the 60% of that? Well, then this is a patient who has the means and the ability to pay us. Why don't we attempt to collect now while they're still motivated to get the service because they haven't received it yet? They're engaged positively with us because they're looking for care and seeking options rather than they've already received the care and they don't want the phone call six months from now and we've sacrificed patient experience to get the collections when we knew they would pay already. So mm -hmm. we have the data at this point over years and years of, of historical data input. Now what we're working towards is integrating that, that back into the EMR. So I would say we're about halfway there. Oh, wow. Well, that is really, really cool. And I look forward to hearing about the results of that pilot and uh, yeah. what, what you and SIFT do with, uh, with that information regarding next steps. That's really awesome. Good luck with that. Thank you. You bet. So, what do you think the future holds for AI and healthcare IT? Oh, boy. Um, I, think, I think healthcare's biggest barrier is trust. I think maybe more so, that may be more so true than it used to be. You know, if we think about headlines these days with digitized patient records, you know, we're hearing all, this, all these stories about patient data breaches. Yeah. We're hearing about uh, global pandemics and how the healthcare system is strained by it, and uh, you know services are being canceled or put off. Uh, but you know, even before all of those things, I would still define the healthcare industry as being inherently low trust. Uh, medical records privacy, second opinions, COVID misinformation, competitive provider markets, payer provider collaboration—you know—all these things sort of feed into a low trust environment. And since Sift is an AI company focused on healthcare payments. I'm, I'm going to zero in on that payer provider collaboration piece. So sure. long term, what Sift is doing is we're leveraging AI-based technologies to shape the way that insurance payers and healthcare providers interact to reduce costs, drive a better patient experience. And so imagine if a payer, and, and even before we imagine, let's talk about that relationship between a payer and a provider. You know, I think inherently, if I'm assuming the best intentions for everyone involved, it's really just a matter of who is the responsibility of this person? Is this person the uh, provider's patient or is it the insurance carrier's member? Um, and so they're both coming at it from who's being uh, looking out for the interests of my member or who's looking out for the interests of my patient. And so uh, payers are always looking for value um, providers are always looking for the utmost care revenue be damned. And, and those are all good things. They're just not always in line. And mm -hmm. so you have this fee-for-service-based um, uh, environment for reimbursement. Even in value-based care, it can still be a hide-the-cheese game because people are trying to put value on their side of the fence versus the other for those, those incentives or reducing their risk. Um, and so there's all this back, back and forth between sending the bill, requesting additional medical records to validate the bill that was sent, um, denying and then appealing and upfront denials when the patient's admitted and doing peer-to-peer -peer reviews. And so it's, it's very much an adversarial 
low trust um, interaction that's occurring between payers and providers. And simply mm-hmm. it's because the payers can't fully trust that what's being billed is appropriate for reimbursement. So imagine if a payer could certify an AI algorithm, one that isn't based on static rules or human bias or the provider's agenda, because remember, both payers and providers have that inherent friction, right, of who's responsible for this patient. Sure. Uh, um, so, you, so you need trust. So we're imagining an AI algorithm that can scan the chart services rendered, it can help auto-adjudicate or eliminate the need for authorization um, because if the payer, if the the AI algorithm tells the payer that this is authorized or that these are the services um, that were performed on this bill and the payer can test that algorithm daily to maintain the trust that the algorithm is running in production, the same as the test or it's undisturbed from the time it was last certified, Once that trust is insured, then providers can be paid almost instantaneously rather than waiting weeks in a transactional EDI file or eliminate that administrative burden of medical records request exchange that's part of that volley that happens during notice of admission and authorization workflows. Oh, wow. That is really, really super interesting, man. Oh, I think the biggest challenge to getting there is getting a provider and a payer to come to the table at the same time. I think Mm. I can tell this story to any decision maker within a payer uh, organization. I can tell it with any provider organization. You know, really it's just them coming to the table at the same time and agreeing uh, and and first off acknowledging that trust is low and that we need to do something about it because there's administrative waste on both sides of the invoice. Um, Mm -hmm. And they both have an incentive to reduce it. It's just a matter of coming to the table and realizing that this is a solution that can address the trust issue. Well, you keep me posted on whether or not you crack that nut. That will. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, and, you know, I think um, the sky's the limit if, if you do, right? Because you've got all of this technology behind you to be able to really make the system more efficient, effective, and satisfying for everybody. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. I have one last question for you, Blake. What advice do you have for healthcare systems and AI-based intelligence? AI-based technologies, uh, or what advice do I have for health systems and AI-based technologies? The best advice I can give, and it's not even mine, um, so I can't take credit for this. It's a mantra that uh, my old CFO I used to work for uh, would say. She would say, effective then efficient. Um, So when healthcare organizations are tackling inefficiencies, you need to understand that the leaks in the process are the pain point more so than the automating of the process. So if you can't understand what's causing the waste, you don't want to just automate waste. Um, Not to sound glib, but I've actually uh, worked with a VP of Revenue Cycle who um, he described automation in this very colorful way where he said that um, RPA, robotic process automation, is a lot like fishing bodies out of the river. He goes, it's doing a great job of fishing bodies out of the river, but nobody's asking why there are bodies in the river. Mm. Um, so, you know, the big thing right now, when we think about RPA, uh, and it's, it's got a lot of buzz around it, we've, the reality is we've seen some highly funded, very high growth companies crash and burn on RPA for not achieving that ROI that it set out to because healthcare workflows are suboptimal, because the data is imperfect. So it's hard to automate a broken process with imperfect data and expect the absolute ceiling 
of the ROI available to you. So if you've identified a segment of your business with imperfect data, consider applying AI-based technologies because large and imperfect data sets, again, like I said earlier, is the hallmark mm -hmm. of that product market fit for AI technology. So if the data was perfect and the process was perfect, then the best technology is a rule system and it's automation. But as we know, insurance payers don't pay consistently or according to their contract. They don't update their members list consistently. And our follow-up and appeal efforts vary internally. So the name of the game is to first unlock your data with AI, that's the effective part, and then segment the waste and automate it. That's the efficient part. So automation is important, but you need intelligence to be the wrapper around that workflow so that you can build effective automations. Oh, that's great. That is great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Well, we have come to the point in our interview where we do our lightning round questions. I hope that you are ready for some rapid fire questions, Blake. You got it. Awesome. Describe yourself in three words. Three words, empathetic, eager, and curious. Great combination. Favorite day of the week? Sunday, because it's, it's for golf and God. Oh, nice. Very good. Very good. Last song you downloaded? This is a fun one. The last song I downloaded is uh, Lonely as the Night by Bill Squire. Oh, uh, nice. If anyone's not familiar with that song, it's an 80s stadium rock song. It's deep cut. Mm -hmm. um, Sounds stylistically like Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine, but it's better. So anyone with your iTunes account, go download it. Excellent. Excellent. How about, would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? I'd prefer to be able to do literally the impossible versus virtually the impossible. So I think talking to animals is what I would choose. Awesome. Well, maybe we can figure out some um, AI-based technology to do that. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, favorite junk food? Jelly Belly. Ooh, good choice. Uh, ask permission or forgiveness? You know, I heard a funny quote from a chief InfoSec officer once. He told me that the greatest hacker in the world is a motivated employee just trying to do his job. And that always resonated with me. So I'm going to choose forgiveness. Good, 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 good. <laughs> An interesting quote, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what is the most boring thing ever? Easy. That's time logging. That's why I'm grateful to work at a company that doesn't do it. Oh, God. The days of time logging. Yeah. That is a, <laughs> that is a waste of time, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, how many times did you sneeze in the last seven days? Oh, boy. Um, I don't think I'm a big sneezer. Not many. Well, good for you. Good for you. I don't have a what lot of allergies, so that's good. <laughs> that is good. That is good. I hope you keep it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is the fastest you've ever driven a car? Uh, what? In high school, I had a PT cruiser, whatever a PT cruiser tops out at. <laughs> Very good. Very. That was a quick PT cruiser, wasn't it? Uh, well, it was zippy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, uh, boy, whatever my wife's cooking, um, you know, she does a lot of amazing things, um, both professionally and, and um, domestically. But I always say she could be on MasterChef or Top Chef, and those are shows oh. we watch all the time. So I'm sure whatever it is, it'll be excellent. Oh, well, that is awesome. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. Um, dawn or dusk? Dawn. There's nothing better than having that cup of coffee before everyone else is up. Oh, yes. Very peaceful, right? Yeah. Um, is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? That sounds like a forbidden fruit concept. So, yes, <laughs> I'm going to say yes. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. Um, who do you admire? Uh, personally, uh, my wife. She, she does good. She has fun. And she's in People Magazine. Oh, my gosh. You are kidding me. No. No. She, uh, she <laughs> runs a nonprofit here in South Central Wisconsin called the Village Diaper Bank, serving diapers to families that need because it's a gap in both federal and state uh -huh. um, assistance programs. And so she does a lot of good. She has a lot of fun doing it. And she's been recognized uh, nationally for it. So I'm very oh, proud of her. That is fantastic. Really. What are you currently reading? Oh, uh, currently reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Um, oh. Everybody's probably read Of Mice and Men, right? Or Grapes of Wrath. Yes. East of yes. Eden, maybe maybe less popular than those two, but it's it's far and away my favorite. It's, uh, it's a very immersive book, great rereadability, um, and some great, great life lessons and quotes there. Wonderful. And here is my last one for you. What is your dream job, of course, other than the one you currently have? Yeah, my dream job would be stay-at-home dad um, because I, I only hope to do it as well as my father did. Wow. That, well, that is amazing. That's amazing. Blake, you have been a wonderful guest, shared so much incredible information, and I thank you very, very much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Claire. It was a pleasure. I'm certainly uh, happy to be back anytime. Well, I will take you up on that because I would love to hear not only how your pilot goes, but also the other amazing things that, that SIFT Healthcare is up to. That sounds great. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Such an interesting discussion with Blake. He shared expert information about machine learning and the positive impact it has on payers, healthcare providers, and patients, how artificial intelligence can work to reduce costs and drive efficiencies for both healthcare insurance companies and systems. And speaking of impacts of AI on patients, Blake also talked about how leveraging technology creates a more compassionate approach to patient billing. And lastly, he shared advice on how technology can disrupt, and in a good way, the healthcare industry. Blake and SIFT Healthcare are doing innovative work that benefits all parties involved in the healthcare industry. It is clear that he cares deeply about finding solutions to the complexities related to the payer billing cycle and helping healthcare systems maximize efficiencies, get paid timely for the services they render, and create a positive patient experience. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by Derek Anderson and music from Caleb Justinger. 
Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends. And if you enjoy what you are hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call and Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thanks again for listening. This is Claire Vincent.